This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. John chapter 19. <coughs> Excuse me, John chapter 19. I'm reading from verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Uh, some of your translations may say uh, vinegar, but it's uh, sour wine. Uh, that's what it really is. And so it says uh, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it in hyssop, and put it to his mouth. In this uh, series of messages that we've been doing, our whole focus has been on the seven cries of Christ from the cross, uh, seven and all. Seven wonderful statements, seven final words. But each of them is a revelation of the very nature and the work of Christ. And so picture the scene, again, picking up exactly where we left this morning. The three hours of darkness is over. The silence has been broken. The full stroke of God's wrath has been extended, expanded upon the sin bearer, which was Jesus, on the cross. And so for six hours, from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, uh, Jesus suffered unutterable agonies and anguish of body, soul, and spirit on the cross. Isaiah 52:14 says, "His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men." And now for the fifth time on the cross. His voice being strong and clear, he cries out, I thirst. <coughs> Although this is the shortest statement on the cross that he made, it nevertheless is full of meaning and revelation. I thirst. So let's look at this a couple of ways tonight. First of all, let's look at it physically. Uh, let's see his humanity. You see, up to now, Right up to this point, no mention was made by Jesus of any physical condition or discomfort. <laughs> Although it must have been almost unbearable what he was going through, but his mind was on other things and other people. His mind was on pardon for his enemies, paradise for the dying thief, provision for his mother. But now, but now... It changes. For the first time, he's saying something about himself. I thirst. Now think just for a moment about the 24 hours leading up to this point. Give us an idea of why he was thirsting. First of all, he had that evening Passover supper with his disciples and how they were vying for position of who would be the greatest. And Jesus, you remember, he 
uh, taught them servanthood. He took that tile and he bent down and he washed their feet. And then how that in that period, at that last supper, uh, he gave Judas the sup and said to him, what do you do, do quickly. And Judas went out into the night to betray Jesus. And then how they went into the Garden of Gethsemane and how Jesus got Peter and James and John just to wait a little bit and he went a little further and he fell on his knees and he agonized in prayer to the very point where drops of blood were coming from his brow. It must have been intense pressure and tension that he was under at that very moment. And then, of course, in that garden, we see the, the coming of Judas, the betrayer, and how he brought the soldiers with him in order to arrest the Lord Jesus. And he gave him that Judas kiss. And then they took him for that mock trial at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And what a, a mockery of a trial that was. <laughs> Well, they even had people there to lie to try to get something on Jesus. It was an awful thing. And then, of course, then they sent him to Pilate where there was a, a rather lengthy, lengthy trial uh, before Pilate, the Roman governor. And uh, at that trial, uh, he, was, he was treated roughly and, and he was beaten and whipped. And then he was sent to Herod's because when, Herod, when Pilate found out that Jesus came from Herod's jurisdiction, Herod was in town, he sent him to Herod because he was just trying to get rid of this problem. And how he was humiliated in front of Herod and his men uh, and how they laughed at him and scorned him and spat upon him. And it was just awful the way he was treated there and then sent back again to, to Pilate. Uh, and another delay before Pilate, as Pilate tried to get out of this, I was trying to find a way out. Uh, and that was the whole scene with Barabbas. Who shall I release onto you? And they, they shouted, Barabbas, the murderer, the thief, the murderer. And of course then, Barabbas went free. And then the crowd are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And then again, he was whipped and he was beaten and a, and a cruel crown of thorns was pressed upon his head and they gave him a, a robe to wear and they bowed down in front of him, hail king of the Jews, and they laughed him to scorn and then they beat him over the head. It was just awful. And then it would be not uncommon at that point, I suppose, for, for prisoners actually to die because of the scourging because when it came to the scourging, it was, it was a whip made of, of, of thongs of leather and intertwined with stone and metal pieces. And so when, when we're whipped with that, it, it just tore lumps out of the prisoner, literally tore lumps out of their flesh. And many of them died. They, they just gave up and died at that point. It was just too much. But then after that, that was the, the walk outside the city gates to the hill of Calvary, the Via Dolorosa, uh, and how the crowds were, were watching. And of course, uh, you know, every, every prisoner had a, a list of what they were going to be crucified for. And of course, Jesus, the only thing they put in him is this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And uh, then finally, uh, he fell under the, the, the weight and the pressure 
of carrying that cross. And Simon the Cyrenian, the, the Roman soldiers, press-ganged him into carrying that cross because they wanted this done and they wanted this to get finished and over and they would have no delay. And so Simon was chosen. And then the crucifixion itself, which was horrible, the nails and driven into his hands and his feet. And, and the loss of blood must have been just dreadful. Uh, and not only that, but the very full weight of the sin of this world that was laid upon him as the, as the sin bearer for us. And then as we talked about this morning, the horror of all horrors, the abandonment of God, where God left him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, of course, the, uh, the, the, the darkness that descended upon the whole land. And as I said this morning, then the temperature would drop. And it was just an awful situation. And now at last, at last, at three o'clock, he begins to speak again. After three hours of silence where he said nothing, and now he cries out, I thirst. <coughs> Two simple words, I thirst. Imagine not one drop of water had passed his lips from the night before. And he went through all of that <coughs> without one drink. On his way to the cross, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which would be something to deaden pain, which he refused. He didn't want that. He wanted to be in full faculties of mind and spirit when he was on the cross. In Zion 69, which is a great messianic psalm, it says, my throat is dried, Zion 69 and 3. In verse 21 of Psalm 69, in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 22, that other great messianic psalm, verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shred, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. This is the humanity of Christ where he cries out, I thirst. And it's important for us, and it was important for John to write this. John is the one who wrote this. Because when John wrote this, you remember this is many, many, many decades after Christ died. And there was a teaching come into the church. The early church never had a problem with Jesus being divine. There's no problem with his deity, but there's a problem come in about his humanity because there was teachers coming to the church, Gnostics. Uh, Gnosticism, uh, Gnosis was the Greek word for know. And these Gnostics felt they had special revelation that nobody else had. And part of that revelation they believed was simply that all spirit is good and all material is bad. All spirit is good, but all material is bad. So a material body would be bad, would be evil. So how could the Son of God, how could he have a, a body which would be evil and bad? How could he have that? So they said he couldn't. So what he had was, was like a phantom body, was like a ghost body. In fact, they believe, according to William Barclay, they believed that when Jesus walked, he left no footprints. That's how ridiculous this was. And so they contested his humanity. Not his deity, but his humanity. And so 
Jesus, even Jesus, knowing this would probably come, uh, you remember Jesus, well, let me just read it to you in, in Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> you know, there was a lot of superstition in those days. Even the disciples were superstitious. Remember in the boat? Remember when Jesus came walking on the water? They were frightened. They thought it was a ghost, they said. It's a ghost. And in Jesus here, in Luke chapter 24, in verse 36, now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be to you. This is well after his resurrection. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they, stood not, while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Verifying, letting them know that he had a human body. All right, it was a resurrection body, but it was still a human body. And he could eat if he wanted to. Not that he needed to, but if he wanted to, he could eat. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. And he remember what he said to Thomas, how that when Thomas went the second time into that room and Jesus appeared, and he said to Thomas, don't be unbelieving, believe. He says, come on, he says, you wanted to see, you say you wouldn't believe unless you touch the nail prints, unless you touch my side. Go ahead, he says, look, touch me. Put your hand into my side. And he didn't need to. Shown again that he wasn't a ghost or a phantom that he had a real human body. And so when he says, I thirst, that lets us know his humanity. God doesn't thirst. God doesn't need a drink. But in his humanity, he needed to drink. He was physically, actually thirsty. Not metaphorically thirsty, but actually thirsty. Jesus is showing here his humanity. Yes, he was truly God. And yes, he was truly man in the sea, at the same time. And that's why it says in Colossians 2 and 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily in him. And this is what we will never understand. How can we understand the, the coalescence of God coming in human form to this earth? And Jesus being a man and God at the same time, who can understand that? But we believe that by faith. And it's true. Scriptures declare it. And so, in a way, when he says, I thirst, he's letting us know and them know, apart from literally being thirsty, this is his humanity speaking from the cross. But let's look at this prophetically. Let's see his deity. Because he's not just man, he's God in human flesh. It says in verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, Jesus knowing. John writes a lot about Jesus knowing. In chapter 1, 
whenever Jesus, whenever, you remember Philip went to Nathaniel and said, we have found the Christ, come and see. And whenever they came, Jesus said to him, behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. What did, what did he say to him? How do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he was astounded because nobody knew he was under the fig tree. This had to be God in flesh to know that. And it truly touched him and moved him. And he instantly became the follower of Christ. So Jesus knew a lot, didn't he? You remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Remember how he read her life story and how she went into the next village to bring all the men? He says, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And then in chapter 6, when it came to feeding the 5,000, asking Philip about how they were going to feed them, he did this to test him for he himself knew what he would do because he knows all things. In chapter 8, he knew the sins of the accusers of the woman taken in adultery. He knew every sin they ever committed. And by the time he had finished, they knew, he knew every sin they'd ever committed. And they all left one by one. Chapter 10 of John, he knows his own sheep by name. Chapter 13, he knew right from the beginning who the traitor would be. He knew it was Judas from day one. Chapter 21. <laughs> you remember Jesus taking Peter aside, asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter was getting a wee bit exasperated. And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were not accomplished, note this that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. He cried out, I thirst, not just because he was humanly thirsty, and undoubtedly he was. He cried out, I thirst, because of his utter devotion for the scriptures to be fulfilled concerning himself. Every prophetic scripture in the Old Testament about Jesus had to be fulfilled, every single one of them. If one was left out and unfulfilled, he couldn't be the Son of God. And here he is in absolute agony and torture with his tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth. And there's one scripture to be fulfilled. One eye to dot one T to cross. And he knew exactly which one it was. Psalm 69 was the one that speaks about him thirsting. And he cries out, I thirst that the scripture might be fulfilled. A thousand years before that scripture was recorded. And here is the Son of God knowing that all of those scriptures, all the ones he had grown up to learn and to, knew them by rote, had memorized them all, and must have known as he grew older all the ones concerning himself. And he was fulfilling them all. All around him, and I haven't time to go into this now, all around him, 
scripture was being fulfilled by pagans who didn't even know they were fulfilling the word of God. And we'll see in some of the moment, I'm going to read some of them. They didn't even know they were fulfilling the word of God, but he knew. And he was watching and listening. And he knew there's one more to be fulfilled. And he cried out, I thirst. There's always been debates about how many scriptures exactly were fulfilled just in that one day on the cross. Some say 38, some say 33, some say 28. But there was a lot, an absolute lot. Let me just read some of them for you tonight. I'm deliberately doing this. Uh, one of them was that Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself, as prophesied by Daniel. In Daniel 9:26, and after 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. How was that fulfilled? John 11:50, 50, 52 tells us. Now consider that it is better for us that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. This was the high priest said this. Now he did not say this of himself, but being high priest that year, prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he might gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas was foretold by David. Psalm 41 and 9. Even a man, my close friend, and whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Was that fulfilled? Absolutely, Mark 14. Then Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order that he might deliver him up to them. And after hearing this, they were delighted and promised to give him money, and he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Jesus Christ would be forsaken by his disciples, as prophesied by Zechariah. Zechariah 13 and 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, which would be Jesus. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? Mark 14, 50. Then they all forsook him and fled. Even the very price of his betrayal uh, was foretold by Zechariah. And I said to them, if it is good, give me my price, and if not, let me go. So they weighed my price, 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11 and 12. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 26. And said, what are you willing to give me, and I will deliver him up to you. And they offered him, Judas that is, 30 pieces of of silver. Zechariah even foretold what would be done with the betrayal money. Zechariah 11, 13. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the princely price at which I was valued by them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Zechariah 11, 13. Here's the fulfillment in Matthew 27. Now when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he was condemned, he changed his mind and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? You see to it yourself. And after throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he went out and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is the price of blood. And after taking counsel, they bought a potter's field with the pieces of silver for a burial ground for strangers. This, these were all written hundreds of years before it happened. But every one had to be fulfilled. 
Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be sacrificed as a Passover lamb of God. Isaiah 53 and 7, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 20, and here's the fulfillment. For Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, 1 Peter 1, 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed by corruptible things, but by the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who truly was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for your sake. As I also prophesied the scourging and the mocking you would suffer. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to the smiters or the scourgers and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And look at Matthew 27. Then they released Barabbas to them. But after scourging Jesus, he delivered him up that he might be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers, after taking Jesus with them into the praetorium, gathered the entire band against him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet cloak around him. And after planting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a rod in his right hand and bowing down on their knees before him, they mocked him and kept on saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then after spitting on him, they took the rod and struck him on the head. Both Isaiah and David prophesied that his body would be mutilated. Here's the prophecy in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52. Many were astonished at him, for his body was so disfigured, his visage was marred, we read that earlier, even his form beyond the sons of men. Psalm 22, I can count all my bones, they look and they gloat over me. The fulfillment... Matthew 27 and John 19 will almost be finished with this. But after scourging Jesus, he delivered him up so that he might be crucified. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And on and on and on and on, you could go reading them one after one after one. Every single one of them was fulfilled to the T. Yeah. There's just one left. Just one left from Psalm 69. And Jesus, knowing that all things were not accomplished, he cried out, I thirst <laughs> to make absolutely sure that the word of God was filled in its totality, that there could be no doubt. What do you think the odds would be of all of those being fulfilled in one day? It's astronomical. It's a number that you can't even imagine. To show us that the scriptures are true and accurate, the prophecies are real, should it take 700 years, should it take a thousand years or a million years, they will come true if it was spoken as the word of God through the prophet, and it was. Huh. Jesus suffered on that cross, and during those three hours of darkness and silence, then he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which I said this morning was the most awful, awful moment of the entire scene. And so at that moment, he suffered the very pangs of hell itself, being made sin for us, being forsaken by God. He had drunk the full cup of God's wrath right to the very dregs. Isn't it interesting? But in Matthew 15, when he was offered wine and myrrh, he refused it. And in Luke 23, 36, he was offered sour wine. And it seems to be he refused that at that point. But in John 19, 29, right at the last, 
in order to fulfill scripture, that vinegar was handed up to him. And here's the interesting thing. It says it was, it was somebody, I don't know who it was, but somebody dipped a sponge in vinegar and held it on hyssop. It says hyssop and reached it up to him. In Exodus, whenever the lamb was slain and the blood had to be applied in the doorposts of the lentils, guess what it had to be applied with? Hyssop. Hyssop. And here he is again, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And God is making us know through his scriptures that every detail was fulfilled, that he was the lamb of God. Just as that lamb back then in the Exodus was a type of the real lamb of God, and here it's offered up with hyssop. God is fulfilling every single thing. Jesus, apart from his physical suffering, apart from his physical, literal thirst, he was suffering the very pangs of hell itself. This was hellish, what he was going through. And he cried, I thirst. Hell is a thirsty place. It's a thirsty place. Do you remember in Luke 16, we had the rich man and Lazarus and how they died. We mentioned this the other week. Into Sheol, Hades, the underground place of the dead, those who departed, and how it was separated. And one was called Abraham's bosom or paradise. But the other place of torture was where the rich man was. And how he begged Father Abraham, please let Lazarus dip his finger in water and come and touch my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. That old dirty beggar who sat outside his gate, that the very dogs licked his wounds, that he wouldn't give a crust to. Let him dip his dirty finger in water and touch my tongue. I am tormented in this flame. He was thirsting in hell, and nothing could slake his thirst. And that's telling us that hell is a place where men will thirst. They will thirst for things they never had, or things they have lost, or things they wanted and never could be, or never have, and they cannot get it, and they never will get it. And they'll be there for untold millions of years thirsting for something that they'll never, ever get. People are thirsting today for things, aren't they? That's right. And no matter how much they get, they're thirsting for more because it never, ever satisfies. Never. How many really, really wealthy people in this world have you heard even admitting that having had everything, they're still not satisfied? They say, is that it? Is that it? You can only buy so many planes or buy so many cars or buy so many homes. There comes a point you say, is that it? Is that Man's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he possesses, Jesus said. They're still thirsting for more. Uh, people goes into a lifestyle of lust, for example, it never satisfies, and they thirst for more. If they get into pornography, it will never satisfy. They will thirst for more. 
If they get into drugs, it'll never satisfy it. They thirst for more. If they get into alcohol, it will never satisfy it. They thirst for more. They're never fulfilled. Hell is a place where people will thirst and will never ever be fulfilled. Jesus said to the woman at the well, she had already gone through six men, hadn't she? And she was miserable. She was so unhappy. But as I often said, Jesus was the seventh man in her life, the perfect number. And he said to her, if you drink of this water, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I'm going to give you, you will never thirst again. And you can realize, of course, that he just wasn't talking about that cup of water from that well. That's what she was talking about. He was talking about something greater than that, wasn't it? You're thirsting for something and you cannot get it satisfied. But I'm going to give you water that will satisfy you. And you'll never thirst for that again. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how that when you come to Christ, there's, there's maybe been stuff in your life that has just dominated your life. You thirsted after and you come to Christ and it's gone. And you never even think about it again. Just It's gone. That thirst is gone out of your life. Thank God. In John 7, 37, Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. The world is full of broken cisterns, as the Bible says. But he says, come unto me and drink. Do you remember the rock in the Old Testament where Moses spoke to the rock and the water came out and gushed out? Two million people thirst was satisfied with the water that came from a rock and Jesus is our rock and he's the one who satisfies our thirst Revelation 7:16 says they shall hunger no more nor thirst anymore when you get to heaven Almost the last invitation given in the New Testament is Revelation 22, 17. Where the invitation is for those who thirst to come and take of the water of life freely. <laughs> freely. And so when Jesus said those two simple words from the cross, I thirst, <laughs> it meant so much, didn't it? That was fulfilling scripture. It meant so much for him to do that. And it leaves us in absolutely no doubt whatsoever that he is the Son of God and that he died on that cross as the Lamb of God and that he shed his blood for us. And if we come to him, then we'll never thirst for this world anymore. We'll have something that satisfies our lives. Now we'll thirst for more of God, but that's a different kind of thirst, isn't it? That's right. We need that thirst. Yes, that's right. And sometimes we dry up a wee bit, and we need to get that thirst back. But for the world, not, I'm finished with the world. Been there, done that, left me empty. Don't want to go back to it. That's what I always wonder why backsliders get back to that world. It didn't satisfy them the first time. It's not going to satisfy them the second time. 
That's why you got out of it in the first place, because it didn't work, did it? Why would you want to go back to that? No. We're with Christ now. Amen. Wonderful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your prophetic word that never fails. Lord, when you speak prophetically, it is done and nothing can change it. And so we give you thanks for your scriptures. We thank you that we can trust them because it's your word to us. We thank you, Lord, that we can build our lives upon the strength of your word because it will never fail us. And so we bless you tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to that cross for us. Thank you for laying down your life for us. Thank you for suffering untold agonies for us so that we could be set free, that we could enjoy an eternity with you forever in your presence. So we bless you and we give you thanks tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.